The future is bright with promise because you're in it. And my word to you is don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. It is yours to make. And those who come after you will be very grateful for your witness and what you have done. The voice you just heard belongs to the Reverend Peter J. Gomes speaking to Harvard University in a 2010 keynote address on Harvard's transition to a more diverse community. Distinguished faculty member for four decades, senior minister at Memorial Church in Harvard Yard, Reverend Gomes is remembered fondly for his spirited take on the world and serving as a moral compass for the community. I am Amy Montemiro with Harvard Divinity School, and this is Divinity Dialogues, conversations on faith, purpose, and bearing witness. Today, we continue our series of special edition interviews with this year's Gomes Distinguished Alumni Honorees. Each year, the Alumni Alumni Council honors the legacy of Reverend Gomes by recognizing graduates whose excellence in life, work, and service pay homage to the mission and the values of the Harvard Divinity School. From investigative journalism to intersectional poetry to Buddhist ministry and bioethics and medicine, this year's honorees bring the Divinity School's vision, working in service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides, to fruition. Each week in June, we'll hear the stories of our honorees. This week, we'll hear from Lama Rod Owens, who earned his Master of Divinity degree in 2017. He is an author, activist, and authorized Lama, or Buddhist teacher, in the Kayu School of Tibetan Buddhism. And he is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. A production note, this interview took place in April 2021 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So Lama Rod and I met over Zoom to avoid travel and to practice good public health measures. To get us started, can you say a little bit about your relationship with religion uh, and or spirituality, and particularly the role it may have played before you joined us here at the Divinity School? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say religion has been an incredibly important part of my life. I was born um, into a very religious family. Um, I grew up in the South, and so Part of my family was, of course, Baptist. Most of my family was actually Baptist. And, and then a small minority of my family, just my mom and I, were Methodists. And my grandfather was um, a Baptist minister. And then when I was about 13, my mother became a United Methodist minister, which created a lot um, of conflict, actually, in my family. Because one of the beliefs that many people held in my family was that women could not become ministers. So she had to kind of push against that, you know, early on in her ministry. But I was so deeply inspired by my mother's commitment to, to her ministry and to her calling. And that didn't necessarily influence me <laughs> to become a minister, <laughs> um, but it, it influenced me to, to follow my heart and to follow my calling in life. Having said all of that, I also have to say that I didn't actually really get religion. <laughs> At the same time, I didn't, particularly Christianity and theology, I, I didn't really, it didn't appeal to me 
Um, it wasn't the theology that was really important. It was the community, the religious community and religious life that was really important. So as I grew older, particularly as I started college, I just drifted away from regular attendance at church. And that was really the beginning of this, I guess the, the opening up of, of, of space for me to explore different ways of expressing myself and different ways of identifying. So I was finally able to, to really start expressing myself as queer and, and progressive and radical and all these, these things that I really started to explore. But somehow religion was still very present and spirituality was still extremely important. I just didn't have the language during that transition to articulate that. But I did <clears throat> end up um, attending for undergrad um, a Christian non-denominational school, which was great. People came to my school, which was called Barry College, to deepen their relationship with God. I didn't see that particularly on the, on the publicity <laughs> in the pamphlet when I was applying. But when I enrolled, I was, you know, very directly told that now you're coming into uh, an environment where you will deepen your relationship with God. I didn't deepen my relationship with God. I broke up with God. So, <laughs> but that was important again, you know, because I think I did something or was beginning to do something that a lot of folks back then weren't doing. I was questioning and asking myself, what else, you know? So after that really formal break, you know, I just committed myself to the work of, of you know, justice, really of service and activism. And that took me into a Catholic worker community, which is where my story begins to intersect with Joshua Eaton's story, <laughs> which is why this is so special to both be nominated because we met in this community actually when he was still uh, an undergraduate student. And he was pivotal for me because he was a practicing Buddhist at the time. And he gave me this book early on that really deeply inspired me to, to really dedicate everything to the path of Dharma and Buddhism. I'm going to pause here for a moment to remind listeners that last week's episode featured our interview with Joshua Eaton, who shared his story of meeting, quote, the future of Lama Rod, the Rod soon to be Lama. He has wonderful things to say about you as well. Yeah, the love is mutual for sure. Mm. Well, what was the book? Do you mind sharing? Yes, it was a book called Cave in the Snow by Jetsuma Palmo. And I read the book, he had the book, and I said, oh, that looks really interesting. So I asked to borrow it. And reading this book, I realized that this was the path that I was gonna follow, this path of multi-year retreating, becoming a teacher, dedicating, you know, so much of my work and labor, you know, to, to, to Dharma and Buddhism. You know, it was just pivotal. It was a pivotal experience. So one thing that people may be surprised when they learn, um, the Divinity School is a non-sectarian, multi-faith organization uh, with a student body that represents mm -hmm. you know, 30 plus religious traditions and, and denominations each year. What's something else that may be surprising about the school and what would you like the world to know about your time at HDS? 
it was such a unique place. You know, I just, I, I can't, I can't quite explain what it's like being in this academic social environment where all these practitioners and scholars are represented from, from religions and, and traditions I'd never even heard of <laughs> before. And to, to just, to be in spaces where I didn't feel as if I was being judged or attacked, but where rather I was allowed to be myself and people were interested, you know, in, in that expression. I had a friend who was a Satanist. I just really love that. And I know that freaks everyone out, but I think the great thing about Divinity School is that you actually are invited and, and also expected to move past assumptions and to actually get into the lived experience of practitioners, which was incredible. You know, one of my, like, richest memories was introduction to ministry, you know, that all the MDivs had to take. And, and my cohort, my section was just so, it was like a family, you know, we get together in section and sit around, a, you know, this long table um, in, in Div Hall. And I would just sit there and go, oh my God, I never, I've never had this experience of sitting around the table with Christians, you know, and Hindus, Satanists, like Muslims, every variety subculture, you know, within these major paths. You know, I just, I just, I wish that everyone would have this experience. And I grew up in, you know, kind of like a monolithic culture in the South. You know, you were, you were Christian, right? And if you weren't Christian, then like you were somehow going to go to hell. You know, that was really how we arranged this kind of thing. And so when I really stepped into the path of, of Buddhism and Dharma, I kind of stepped out of the experiences of many people that I grew up with, including my family. So coming to Div School, I just felt like I wasn't alone in that, in that choice, because there were many converts as well. Yeah, there were many folks who were born into the traditions that they were studying and practicing. And then there were many of us who were who were converts, like we were born into one tradition and we chose another. Or there were several of us who were practicing multiple traditions and paths at the same time. And I felt like that was also really supported. You know, you like you weren't expected to choose. You know, you you had the agency and the space to go into spaces and to be whomever you needed to be in order to, to have that experience of whatever you considered sacred or divine. Mm. So it, it took you out of what felt like a false binary. Exactly. Mm. And, and this really builds on that, that beautiful foundation you just gave us about the divinity school, having folks who think about these complex, challenging, ethereal, sometimes questions, uh, but they're grounded in action, right? So with that in mind, how can we as individuals find our way to lead with ethics and with compassion, and especially when weathering difficulties? Well, you know, I think these, this is why I do the practice that I do. This is why I chose to study and practice Buddhism, because it offered me tools and strategies to deal with, uh, I mean, the suffering of life and living. I came to Dharma 
no other options left, you know. Um, and, 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 and so, so my positionality, and this is the positionality that I leaned more into, even as a student at HDS, what, but, but my positionality is that of a practitioner and students, you know, and a scholar being very secondary. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't actually identify as a scholar, everyone else identifies me as a scholar. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but what I, but I'm, what I'm really good at is telling people, you know, are, are, are expressing how I use the practices in this tradition to suffer less. And that's all I do. Because if I can't use the word ministry and talking about what I do, then I have failed as an HDS student. <laughs> You know, but but this is my ministry, right? This is my ministry to reduce suffering and harm for myself and for others around me. And that is that is my role as a spiritual leader, you know, and a teacher and a spiritual director for folks. And I think for anyone, I encourage everyone to to figure out what their sources of refuge are and lean on those sources. Right. If if it's God, right, or nor if it's family, if it's friends, if it's texts, you know, if it's beliefs, whatever it may be, take refuge in these things, you know, and let let these sources of refuge take care of you. Right now, I don't know what the world is going to be like tomorrow, but I I feel held in the second, in this moment, you know, by my teachers and by the earth and you know, by my basic practice. And that's all I know, and that's all I need, really. You know, and I just, there's so many people right now in the world who don't even have that. And if you don't have that, the world becomes extremely antagonistic. You know, the world becomes so fatalistic and, and, and harsh and uncaring. And that's really hard to endure. So we're hearing, find your refuge when you can. Yeah. Do what you can to help alleviate suffering. Yeah. And, you know, and I would say also is, is the compassion mm. as well. I think it's really easy for us to say, you know, those people are the reason, you know, why we're all struggling, mm. right? I mean, it's just, it's just the heart, that, that kind of scapegoating, placing of blame on other groups of folks right now. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's the, you know, at the heart of um, anti-Asian and Pacific Islander, you know, violence, you know, the racial violence against black folks, the anti-trans legislation that's arising all over the country and really all over the world. All of this, this stuff arises because we're losing this capacity to experience to experience compassion, and therefore we're losing the capacity to empathize. You know, so we don't actually understand, or we choose not to connect to the deep discomfort, the suffering of others mm-hmm. around us, and we choose not to take care of our own discomfort. Mm-hmm. So we bypass it and we blame others for it. I'm going to go off script for just a second. Shall we uh, get back to you? I would love to ask more about your book. Books, oral books. Mm-hmm. But Joshua, uh-huh. and Joshua, uh, when we were talking about ethical leadership, mentioned 
that there can be an unhealthy attachment to power. And he was describing a lot of what you just talked about from the the reverse, that if you're in a position of power and you are attached or you fetishize the the idea of power Mm -hmm. as one metric of success, Mm -hmm. especially in a leadership space, that that, Mm -hmm. in fact, creates more suffering in the world rather than alleviate that suffering that as leaders, we like to think people go into positions of power to alleviate suffering. And that is not always the case. Anything you would like to say on that topic before we, we shift into talking more about your book. Yeah, absolutely. I think that people can be much more interested in the ability to influence things around them instead of actually centering an ethic of care and benefits. You know, that power, you know, that power becomes something that people use to attempt to fill unmet needs. You know, um, it's the same thing with fame. You know, I, you know, I was just having this conversation with an artist friend recently where you know, I was like, it seems like some people go into the arts to be famous, but not to practice the arts, you know? And it's the same thing with positions of power. It's like, oh, I don't actually want to help anyone. I, I want to have authority because I have all these unmet needs around not being seen or heard, right? You know, and this power helps me to bypass the discomfort, you know, of, of being lonely and isolated. So we would love to ask you a few questions about yes. how you bring your education to fruition in your day-to-day experience. But as a Buddhist teacher mm-hmm. and a best-selling author mm-hmm. with a master's in divinity, how do you foster respect for pluralism in your everyday life? I always come from the perspective that there's so many paths that lead to our understanding the sacred or the divine. And I always say to, you know, to the, to the dismay of the general Buddhist community is that like, I just don't, oh, I don't believe that Dharma is the best way. It's a great way. Absolutely. But it's not the only way. And that Buddhism is just this collection of symbols and signs that point us somewhere. So I think that I, I struggle with fundamentalism anywhere you know, across the board, no matter what path, fundamentalism actually is a a function of rigidity. And that rigidity actually makes it very difficult for us to experience what I consider the the expansive, voluminous, open nature of ultimate reality. So is this meta-Buddhism? Practicing non-attachment to the Dharma itself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you you have to. We we you know we have this this teaching that when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. <laughs> you know, which is I love. And there's so many ways, of course, to to interpret that. But my interpretation of that is that when something gets rooted and firm and personified, then you have to get rid of it. You mm-hmm. know, you have to. You know, another way to look at the, at this as as well that comes out of the teachings is that. The teachings take you to the threshold, but in order to step over the threshold, you have to give up everything you think you know and understand, right? But the problem is we hold on. 
to everything, all the concepts, all the symbols, all the ideas, because we're attached to the sense of self. You know, that again, that goes back to the rigidity. Shifting from your thoughts on fear, and please feel free to expand because I'm guessing there might be a connection here. Can you tell us a little bit more about your newest book, yeah. Love and Rage, yeah. and how you connected the powerful emotions of love and rage through this lens of liberation? And if you're willing to, how might fear fit in there? I'll start by saying this. I think what we really fear is, is, is freedom. We really fear being free because we don't actually understand what freedom is. We don't get it. But we know what captivity feels like. Like, you know, let me just have a, a meaning-making moment here, you know, because I, I want to use the tools of my MDiv. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I just think about the Exodus. You know, I use the story of the Exodus quite a bit because that's, that the Exodus has been an important story for me in my upbringing in, this, in the Southern Black community, right? When the, the Hebrews left Egypt, they were, they were leaving something that they knew and understand and could relate to and was entering this desert for 40 years and being told that like, if you do this, you'll be given what you need when you need it. So it's not like you're, you're going to go into the desert with a surplus and you have everything. No, it's like you'll be given it when you need it. And that's a hard risk to take. You know, so in the same way, when we talk about freedom and liberation, you know, you're stepping out onto, into an experience that you just don't understand and know. So there has to be a, 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 an experience of trust in something greater, something that's actually taking care of you. And I, a lot of folks don't want to take that risk. And I think for me, when I talk about, you know, bringing it back, you know, even deeper into love and rage, it's like the whole book is a risk. It's, it's just a, it's a manual or maybe an exploration of the risks that I've had to take in order to experience the level of freedom that I experience. And when I talk about freedom and liberation within this context, I mean space. I mean the space to make choices that aren't about, you know, self-indulgence. It's not about hurting folks. It's actually making choices to, to reduce harm and violence and making choices to be a benefit to others. And the more I make those choices, the closer I get to this, this most authentic expression of reality itself. And that is my true nature. Right, you know, and so <clears throat> I wanted us, you know, in writing this book, I wanted all of us to, to have tools, you know, to, to begin to cultivate the spaciousness for, for ourselves. And I wanted us to go into the thing that, where many of us, the thing, you know, that for many of us, we feel as if we have very little agency over or with, which is anger and rage, right? And, but to bring, the experience of love into that. To help people to understand that we're not trying to erase the anger, but we're just trying to remember the love as we're experiencing our anger. To wrap up this amazing, empowering, incredible conversation, uh, just, I wanted to ask you a bit about 
the divinity school's focus, which is often characterized as making a world of difference, right? We, we see that in a, in a number of different ways across, across campus and across our work. What are one or two tangible ways that everyday folks can help bring this HDS focus to fruition? So in other words, how can we see the vision for ethical leadership in action? Right. Well, I think it's it's personal responsibility. I think that we're really good at demanding other people change. We're not so good at asking ourselves to change. You know, so first and foremost, I have to embody this kind of ethical framework for myself. You know, and we have to do the work to do that. And I know this past year we we're really into like racial justice and economic justice and environmental justice, which is all really important. Um, but we have to understand that the issue with that connects all of, of these struggles is just us, it's me, actually. It's the ways in which I am not, I have not deepened compassion and love for myself, for my body, and the ways in which I struggle to offer that compassion for people around me and for the environment. Like if I can just deepen this love for myself, that will impact the ways in which I overconsume resources, you know, which is having a direct impact on the environment, right? And maybe when I deeply embody this ethic, I can just begin to become an example for others around me, you know? So people can look at me and say, oh, like what's Rod doing? You know, what's he up to, right? Because I think we're so, I think it's so easy for us to use you know, our intellect <laughs> and to deconstruct and analyze and which is what we're trained to do coming out of that, you know, coming out of HGS, absolutely, right? But what we have to do is the hardest work, you know, which is change, letting go, mourning the things, you know, that we struggle to let go of. Many thanks to Lama Rod for his time, for his insight, and for honoring the full spectrum of human emotion as he tends to the spirits of those he serves. And thank you to you for tuning in to this special edition of Divinity Dialogues. This podcast came together with the help of some remarkable colleagues, including Caroline Cataldo with her editing and producing expertise, Kristen Pont with her exceptional work with the Gomes Award event, and folks across the communications and development teams at the school. We'll have a new episode coming out next week featuring a thought-provoking interview with Dr. Omar sultan Haq, a physician, social scientist, philosopher, and two-time divinity degree earner who studies questions ranging across medicine, religion, and bioethics. You can find us on the HDS SoundCloud channel or subscribe to Harvard Divinity School on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss a new episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about HDS and our amazing community. Until next time.